Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 4th, 2010, and today's podcast is a bit unusual. There's no guest, just me. I want to share with you some of my thoughts on trade that I've been thinking about for a while. And in the meanwhile, I want to thank everyone who's been responding to my request for feedback on the Experimental Mike Munger podcast. Uh, My volume of mail has increased lately, and my ability to respond, sadly, has not been very high. But I assure you, I read every one of your emails, and they're very gratifying to me and informative, and please keep them coming. Uh, And I also appreciate your suggestions for guests, so uh, keep those coming too. Finally, I want to mention before I get started that we are on Twitter at EconTalker, E-C-O-N-T-A-L-K-E-R, and I use that Twitter account to mention upcoming podcasts, solicit questions for guests, and Add some occasional thoughts on other things as well, so please uh, follow us there if you're interested. On to today's topic. About 15 years ago, I wrote a book, The Choice, A Fable of Free Trade and Protectionism. And in the book, David Ricardo comes back to life as a ghost to try to convince an American television manufacturer in 1960 that trade is good for America, good for the next generation of Americans, even though it will destroy his company and hurt his hometown. At the center of that book is Ricardo's central contribution to economics, the idea of comparative advantage. So I've been thinking about comparative advantage for a long time, and a few years ago I wrote a couple of essays for the Library of Economics and Liberty that I'll link to, exploring some of what I've learned and and been thinking about. But in the last couple of years, my thinking on trade has, has changed. I've realized there's perhaps an even deeper insight about trade perhaps even more important than David Ricardo's. And David Ricardo's insight of comparative advantage is that it's in every economics class, every principles class, most macro classes, most micro classes. It generates a lot of good exam questions. And I wrote that book, The Choice, because I felt that I knew that I hadn't understood fully what the significance of comparative advantage was, even though I was pretty good at those exam questions. But in recent years, the last couple, I'd say, uh, my ideas on trade have not changed so much as gotten, I, I think, richer. And these insights come from conversations I've had with Don Boudreau, a seminar I attended of James Buchanan's a podcast with Mike Munger on the division of labor. And it's also related to a podcast uh, I did with Paul Romer on growth. So to get started, I want to give you a quote from an article by Robert Frank in the New York Times. Now, Robert Frank is in a We did a podcast with him a while back. Uh, He's a – writes a column at the New York Times and he's an economist at Cornell. And here's what he wrote. As a Peace Corps volunteer in Nepal long ago, I hired a cook who had no formal education but was spectacularly intelligent and resourceful. Beyond preparing excellent meals, he could butcher a goat, thatch a roof, plaster walls, resole shoes, and fix broken alarm clocks. He was an able tinsmith and a skilled carpenter, yet his total lifetime earnings were less than even a very lazy, untalented American might earn in a single year. 
So the question is, that's the end of the quote, the question is, why does a spectacularly intelligent and resourceful person in Nepal earn spectacularly less than a lazy, untalented American? I often think about my daughter. She's 17 years old. She's been babysitting, oh, for maybe two or three years. She makes about $10 an hour, uh, which is a lot more than anybody in Nepal makes who's incredibly talented. Her main talent in earning that $10 an hour as a babysitter is her ability to show up on time and not burn the house down. It's it's not really uh, a, an enormously demanding job. Patience helps. It's great uh, if the kids don't tell the parents when they come home that you know, the, you lock the kids in the in the basement while they were screaming. You know, there was a few other skills, but it's not like thatching a roof or butchering a goat. Um, and in America, that's common, as Robert Frank points out. Relatively, or I would say, seemingly unskilled people make a lot more than an incredibly talented person in Nepal. So why is that? And there are a lot of different answers uh, you could think about. Robert Frank gave one. Uh, David Henderson at our sister site EconLog gave one. And I thought, uh, although David I thought was closer to the truth, I thought Robert Frank's answer didn't get it. What I thought was the heart of the answer. And so I'm going to try to answer uh, that question of why a skilled person in Nepal earns so little relative to an unskilled American. And in doing so, I want to try to give you an idea of these insights into trade that I've been thinking about. So the one-sentence answer as to why a skilled person in Nepal earns so little comes from uh, a quote of in that book I mentioned earlier, The Choice, and that is, self-sufficiency is the road to poverty. Self-sufficiency is the road to poverty. Now, self-sufficiency is, in everyday language, is a good thing. It means standing on your own two feet, not relying on others. In the context of economics, in the context of trade, if you start thinking about it, you realize very quickly that standing on your own two feet is um, – if you mean it literally, if you mean literally not relying on anyone other than yourself, you are desperately uh, – you're going to be desperately poor and, and you probably will not survive. Uh, there's a wonderful documentary uh, PBS put out a few years ago called Frontier House where people were given the challenge of living by the rules of 1880 Montana. And uh, they were challenged to see if they could come up with enough resources at the end of the of the summer that would tide them over through a, a brutal Montana winter. If I remember correctly, none of the families made it. Uh, they did not generate enough output with their uh, modern skills. They weren't sufficient. Uh, and most of these families were self-sufficient other than uh, they only relied on themselves other than one, if I remember correctly, family who was seen as cheating by the other families because that family created a still, made some whiskey and swapped it for other people's goods. And that was considered cheating. It was it – was, to most of the participants, the other four families, the whole idea was to see if by being self-sufficient you could make it. And of course, most of us uh, would struggle to do that, certainly because of our modern skills not being very well suited for 1880s Montana, but also simply because if you only rely on yourself, uh, you're going to be very, very poor. And again, if you push it literally to you can't use tools other people make, you can't use uh, any uh, implements like that, you're going to have uh, a really, really poor life. So that's the, the quick answer. Self-sufficiency is the road to poverty. A slightly longer answer, 
coming from David Ricardo would be that specialization in trade make us rich. The more America trades with Nepal, the better both of us will be. Trade is mutually beneficial. Trade allows people with diverse skills, even if, as Ricardo pointed out, even if you're not as good at everything as someone else. So even if I'm not as good at thatching a roof or butchering a goat or anything as you are, you're better at all those things than I am. Usually, we're going to be better off if each of us specializes in certain tasks and trades for the, the other things that we want. And again, it's important to point out that the power of specialization in that setting isn't so much what we normally think of, which is learning by doing, that the more you do something, the better you get at it. It simply has to do with the fact that if you devote yourself to what you're relatively good at, the two of us – and you do the same – the two of us can produce more than we otherwise would. Now, the opponents of globalization want us to be more like Nepal, a country that is pretty cut off from the rest of the world. But I think uh, the deeper answer as to why Nepal is relatively poor or why the people in Nepal struggle despite their tremendously talented set of skills comes from this insight of James Buchanan uh, that I heard him deliver in a seminar based on a paper he wrote with Yong Yoon on increasing returns and Adam Smith. And I'm going to use the example that they use. I think it's in their paper. Uh, it's certainly the example that Buchanan used in the seminar. So here's the idea. You, you and I and a bunch of our uh, fellow, fellow uh, human beings, uh, we're part of a small group of hunter-gatherers who are living in very primitive subsistence conditions. Uh, we uh, get all of our food from hunting. Uh, we could do some gathering as well, I suppose, but basically there's one task. There's hunting and meat is what sustains us. I apologize again to the vegetarians in the crowd, especially after the Munger podcast, which received a lot of interesting comment and criticism. Uh, I'll mention again my daughter's a vegetarian and my wife is, but I think in primitive societies, uh, vegetarianism was a uh, was not that common. So we're going to be talking about a primitive society of hunters. So we're all sitting around uh, at the end of a very long, exhausting day of hunting and, and tramping through the woods. We've been trying to kill deer all day, and some of us have had success. And suppose in that setting you're tired of living on a very small amount of venison, a very small amount of deer meat. You've really are hungry pretty much every night, and there's some nights you're very hungry, and you'd like to have more meat. You'd like to have more output. You'd like to be have higher income. What, what are your choices? How, how could any of us uh, get better off? How could we move toward a higher level of prosperity? Uh, as these hunters, we're, we're, um, we're really hungry. So what are our options? So I, there are really three options that we have for doing better. You can bang your neighbor on the head and take his meat, and that way you can get more. You can develop a technique that allows you to be a more successful hunter for every hour or day that you're out in the woods. You could improve the knife that you use. You could invent a bow and arrow. You could invent a gun. You could invent a net. Uh, you could learn to track deer more successfully. There's a whole bunch of stuff we, you could do, and we call that generally productivity. So there's theft or plunder. That's option number one. Option number two is productivity. And there's a third option, which is trade. And uh, we're going to talk about that in, in a little more detail. I just want to say first that 
the insight about banging people on the head. W- Walter Williams pointed out uh, to me that I heard him in a talk give the observation that that first method of, of self-improvement, of banging people on the head, uh, that's been the historical favorite for a long, long time. It's only in the last few centuries that people could imagine improving themselves by something other than stealing it from someone else. You tend to think of theft as a negative – excuse me, as a zero-sum game that if I get richer by taking your venison, uh, I'm better off and you're worse off and they cancel each other out. But in fact, it's important to remember that theft is actually a negative-sum game. If I know that I might get banged on the head, my incentive to accumulate wealth is smaller. And not only that, I'm going to have to devote resources to keeping you from banging me on the head. I'm going to lock up my meat. I'm going to hide it from you. Uh, theft, the p- potential for theft uh, costs us resources. So secure property rights are an incredibly important part of prosperity. So I just want to put that – I'm not going to say anything more about that, but it's important uh, to mention as we go along. The other two methods, uh, productivity increases and trade, are not zero-sum. They are positive-sum. They certainly make me better off without making anyone worse off. By the way, I'm assuming through this example that there's lots of deer and no congestion problems there. But so if I can figure out a better way to kill deer or if I can trade somehow for deer meat, uh, I'm going to make you better off as well as me. Certainly in the trade case, in the productivity case, you might say, well, but if if I figure out a way to make a sharper knife or a throw a spear better or et cetera, then that only benefits me, the innovator. But in fact, when you see me coming home with more meat, you see me with a fuller, uh, happier face, you see me adding clothing that's larger, you're going to say – you're going to wonder, how did I do that? You might follow me around. I might share the idea with you because I like you or I might sell it to you or you just might figure it out on your own under the impetus that there's a technique to find. So productivity and trade tend to benefit the whole group. Uh, Theft punishes the group. So when we think of trade – so I'll turn to the third technique. When we think of trade, we think of David Ricardo. We think of specializing in some aspect of the production process, some task – and trading, make, just doing that full-time, doing it relatively well so that I can accumulate enough stuff of that thing I'm doing well to trade for other stuff rather than trying to do everything myself. So in that Ricardo story, what drives trade and what drives specialization is diversity, is our differences, the fact that we're not the same. And that allows for the possibility that I can improve myself by specializing and then interacting with you. And as Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the chief rabbi of England, is pointed of the United Kingdom has pointed out, uh, trade makes diversity a blessing. Often diversity is a source of conflict and tension, but because of this opportunity to specialize in trade, trade, trade takes our differences and encourages us to cooperate through the trade and exchange process. But what if we're all identical? In the case where we're all identical, the Ricardian incentive to trade goes away. And if you're an economic student or a teacher, you know that it doesn't just uh, – it isn't just a special case where we're all literally identical. If, we're, if you're twice as good at two tasks as I am, our incentive to trade disappears. If you're three times as good, what really matters is our differential ability in task A versus task B. 
And so if we're all identical, if we're all equally good at all tasks, it looks like there's not going to be any specialization. There certainly isn't going to be any Ricardian specialization. But it turns out, and this is the Buchanan-Yoon point, it turns out that there is a possibility for specialization in trade even when we're all identical. And it's rather spectacular. It's rather – I certainly for me, was I didn't appreciate it or know about it. I hadn't thought about it. And I think it's also incredibly important. So let's go back to our hunting scenario. Uh, you know, I said there's only one task, hunting, but of course there's lots of other tasks as well. Hunting is the way we gather our food, our protein, but we have to eat during the day. We have to keep our tents or lean-tos or thatched huts thatched. There's all kinds of other tasks along the way, but our, when I say there's only one task before of, of deer hunting, I meant there's only one way of gathering food. So one of the things we have to do before we go out into the woods is we have to make sandwiches. Silly but fun example. We have to make sandwiches to take out into the field with us because we're not going to be able to uh, – there are no restaurants in our primitive society. So uh, each of us every morning takes some time and makes a sandwich for breakfast, say, and a sandwich for lunch so that we don't have to come back home to fuel up uh, during the day of hunting. And that sandwich-making task takes away time from the task of hunting. So one of us decides, hey, I'm going to open a business that offers a takeout breakfast and lunch solution. I'm going to sell pre-made sandwiches so the, the hunters, my fellow hunters, don't have to do it for themselves. And that's going to let the hunters spend more time hunting or doing something else, you know, fixing the thatch in the roof or whatever it is. When you think about it for a little bit, you realize that at first glance, this takeout business cannot succeed. Because if you think about it, what's required for this business to succeed is that you – I'm the sandwich maker now. I've opened the takeout business. For my business to succeed, you have to be willing to pay more for a sandwich than I give up by not being able to hunt. So I'm going to – by making the sandwich for you, I'm not going to be able to hunt. I'm going to lose time I could have spent hunting. You're going to free up time. So I have to get enough of the sandwich to compensate me for the time I'm not hunting. You, as the buyer of the sandwich, want to pay less than what you would normally have to spend in time for gone hunting to acquire this uh, – to make the sandwich yourself. So as a result, if we're all identical – I hope I said that previous example right, but the basic intuition is very straightforward. If we're all identical – and it takes me just as long to make a sandwich as it takes you, and we're equally productive as hunters, me making the sandwich for you is not a viable business alter, is not a viable business opportunity. It can't be profitable. So there's no market for sandwiches if we're all identical, it seems. It seems we need the Ricardian world where some of us are not very good hunters or very good sandwich makers or something like that. But what Buchanan and Yoon point out is that even when we're all identical, it is possible that the sandwich business can thrive. And I want to emphasize that I'm leaving out non-monetary factors, which are, I'll bring back in a little bit later at the very end. And by that, I mean you, know, you might want to stay home and make sandwiches even though it means giving up a little bit of meat production. You're willing to sell the sandwiches cheaper than it would normally uh, – your foregone costs of going out into the field. You're willing to sell them more cheaply because you hate hunting. Either it, it disgusts you or because you hate being out in the wet 
woods or because uh, you feel bad for the deer. It could be a hundred reasons or you love cooking. You love being in the kitchen. You love making a beautiful sandwich. That would might mean that you're willing to forego more meat than you otherwise would. And so there's non-monetary factors that come into our choice of job. I'm going to put those to the side and I want to keep the example of where we're all identical in all ways. And I want to show you then that even despite that, there are huge potential gains from trade and specialization. So that's uh, rather surprising. So at first glance, as I said, it appears there's no possibility of exchange. But in fact, and specialization and trade. But in fact, if there are enough hunters, if our group is large enough, it can be productive for me to become a sandwich maker and make all of us better off. And what it requires is the addition of technology to the sandwich making process that makes sense when I'm making 100 sandwiches or 500 sandwiches, but that doesn't make sense when I'm only making one. So if there are economies of scale, if the addition of technology can lower the cost of sandwich making, suddenly I can now produce a sandwich at a low enough cost to me in terms of what I give up from – I can do it quickly enough that my foregone time per sandwich is actually less than it would take you if you made it yourself uh, with a production process of a single sandwich. So that some of the obvious ways that might happen uh, – and again, I'm going to use some facetious examples from modern times that wouldn't be available to our hunter-gatherers to show you the idea of it. If I'm making one sandwich, I'm going to make one loaf of bread, say, and use it over the course of the week. And in making one loaf of bread, I might have a little small oven, and I might knead the bread myself, the dough myself uh, by hand, of course. And I would slice the meat with my knife, and I would spread the mustard with my knife. And I would grow the mustard perhaps in my mustard field out back. So all those things are the technology when I'm making one sandwich. If I'm making 500, I might have a special oven for break, baking bread. I'll have a, a food processor or a mix master for producing the uh, – kneading the dough. I will have a power electric meat slicer rather than using a knife. Um, I'm going to have a mustard field that's different and easier to cultivate when I'm making enough mustard for 500 sandwiches a day rather than one. So in all these examples, when I'm, what's interesting about this and, and shocking a little bit is that when I'm making 500 sandwiches instead of one, the addition of those technologies of adding capital, adding the, the oven, adding the meat slicer, those technologies make the sandwich cheaper in terms of foregone time cheaper per sandwich, which allows me to then make a profit selling to you to price it at a price that would make it worthwhile for you to want to buy it. You can't say then as the buyer of that sandwich, and here's what's interesting, oh, I'll just do that myself. I'm not going to pay this guy to make my sandwich. I'll get my own meat slicer. But if you're making one sandwich, a meat slicer makes a sandwich more expensive, not cheaper. The car price per sandwich, one sandwich is not enough to amortize the higher cost of capital that the meat slicer adds. You have to have a large volume to exploit the advantages of that technology. So this is a very important point in and of itself. I'm just mentioning I I'd never thought of it before until I was thinking about these issues. The, it's a little bit of a puzzle sometimes why in primitive societies – I mentioned this a long time ago in a podcast somewhere with somebody. I don't remember who. Why don't they use the – 
up, why don't primitive societies today use the most up-to-date technologies? And the simple – it's not because they don't know about them. The simplest answer is it's not profitable. It's not productive to use a grain thresher when you have a plot of land that's 20 feet by 30 feet. You got to have a big farm to make a wheat harvester or some sophisticated piece of modern technology profitable. And so it's very important to notice that the scale of the operation uh, has a huge impact on what technologies are sensible to employ, how much capital you should employ. And this was one of Adam Smith's most fundamental insights in the wealth of nations. The division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. And as Mike Bunger pointed out in the podcast we did on that concept, one of the – it's not just that you divide the task up into smaller and smaller pieces and have each person specializing. That's part of it, and that's kind of what this is, the sandwich specialization. And in, you can imagine if you're making thousands of sandwiches, you might have one person working the slicer. You have a baker who bakes the bread. You have someone else who just makes the mustard. You have someone who assembles the sandwiches, somebody who tears the aluminum foil. That's true. That's one of Smith's points, that the tasks as the volume and it, the size of the operation expands, people specialize in more and more tasks. I mean, excuse me, that there's more and more specialization in each task being done by one person. But Smith's, I think, more important insight, which applies even here when one person is making all the pieces of the sandwich, is the application of capital, the application of technology, the application of what I think of as the embodied knowledge of other people, which is that meat slicer, that suddenly becomes profitable. That suddenly becomes wise to use. And then, even more importantly, you have an incentive to continue to improve that technology. And so, I mean, this is just an enormous way that we leverage our our potential as human beings, our productivity. The most trivial example of this that is obvious is that if you lift weights, you can be stronger and you can carry more books around with you. That's great. Uh, or you can do push-ups. You don't even need technology to get stronger to carry more books around with you as you walk through life. Uh, but you can add some technology. You can add a backpack, and a backpack lets you carry more books more comfortably. But then you can really take it up a notch. You can add a Kindle. And when you add a Kindle, you can take a 1,000 books. You can leverage your human abilities to carry stuff in ways that no matter how many hours you spend lifting weights, no matter how well you design the backpack, the Kindle just crushes it. And so you get enormous leveraging of human capability when their technology comes along. Uh, and that's just, you know, that's just a, a trivial example. So the point is, is that the economies of scale, if I'm producing enough sandwiches, and we don't know what that number is, by the way. It, it might be 500, it might be 100, it might be 20. If I'm producing enough sandwiches, it can be possible for me to add technology, to add capital to that process, bring the cost down, and make it worthwhile to specialize in sandwich making and not go hunting. A couple points about that. First, it's that technology isn't sitting there. It's not like somebody says, hey, look at that meat slicer over there. Wouldn't that be great to use? You have an incentive to invent a meat slicer when you have 500 uh, sandwiches to make. That's the whole idea of the Kindle. The whole idea of most enormously large numbers of human innovation is that Somebody has to come up with a way to make the process cheaper, and that's only worthwhile 
when you have lots of people to exchange with, when you have lots of people around you. And it might take, it might take a few million people around you to trade with, more than a few million, tens of millions of people around you to trade with to make it worthwhile to invent an assembly line process for producing an automobile instead of crafting something in a more artisanal, uh, craftish way. So the whole modern technology process, the modern manufacturing process, is the leveraging of technology and creating the technology, the incentive to create that technology uh, that comes from the ability to trade with large numbers of people. At this point, let me, let me just add that you realize right away we start thinking about this that 50 people gathered in the wilderness, uh, let's make them the incredibly – the most – the 50 most skilled Nepalese cooks, or, uh, tinsmiths, roof thatchers, goat butchers that – that Robert Frank was marveling at, how skilled these people were and how little uh, they had to show for it in terms of income. Take the 50 most incredibly skilled people or the 50 smartest people or the 50 wisest people or the 50 strongest people or a mix of all 50 and of those skills in the 50. And you put them in the woods. You put them in Nepal by themselves. You put them in isolation. They're going to be desperately poor. Self-sufficiency is the road to poverty, not just because one person is going to be poor trying to be self-sufficient, but even 50 people trying to be self-sufficient can't maintain the modern standard of living that we've become accustomed to. The modern standard of living comes from our ability to interact with tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people, which allows the incredible specialization we see around us. And that specialization is partly driven by David Ricardo, the fact that we're not all the same. But a lot of it is driven by the fact that if I can interact economically with millions of people, the scale of, te- of the operation and the technology and capital I add to it can make it incredibly inexpensive and give us an incredible standard of living. So those goods are inexpensive. Now, here let me ask you a question. I've said even if we're all identical, we can have this potential for specialization, for specialization if there are enough of us. So here's the question. Which one of us, if we're all identical, is going to become the sandwich maker and open that takeout business? And one answer is it doesn't matter. Any one of us could. But the better answer, which came from a student of mine, I forget who it is. I apologize when I taught this a uh, couple of classes back, said, well, it's the first person to think of it. And that's exactly right. It's not obvious that there is a profit to be made from sandwich making. It's not obvious that there are potential for two jobs in our little society called hunting and sandwich making uh, as a form of productivity. Someone has to think of that, and that's an incredibly important insight. And I say it's important because when we teach comparative advantage in trade, we often get stuck in this two-by-two matrix. So there's two people and there's two tasks. There's fishing and there's hunting, or there's hunting and there's uh, Water gathering. And we then say, well, if we could specialize, one person does one, the other does the other, they can then trade and do better than if they try to do both for themselves as long as blah, blah, blah. But there aren't two tasks. There's N, where N is unknown. We don't know how many tasks there are. The number of tasks that's appropriate for us to specialize in emerges from our interactions. And it emerges from our innovations. It emerges from our entrepreneurial insights. There's no book that says what the end tasks are. They have to be figured out by human creativity. So uh, in the real world, though, in the real world, we're not all identical. We're all different. 
So Smith, by this silly uh, assumption that people are all the same, we can see right away – not right away, but we can see that even in the world where we're all identical, there's potential for trade if the market is large enough, if there are enough of us, if the technology is potentially created, can be created that will allow the price of a sandwich to come down sufficiently. So that's if we're all identical, but we're not all identical. We're all different. So that brings us to the question is – and this is going to be David Ricardo's question. If we're all different, which one of us becomes the sandwich maker? Suppose we figured out or someone has announced or someone had the insight that there could be a sandwich takeout business. Who would do it best? Who's of our group the best person to assign to that task? And I said that two different ways because they don't really mean the same thing. We often say, well, the person who's the best sandwich maker should be the sandwich maker. And what we mean by best is – well, we don't mean literally the best because what we're trying to do in that phrasing is to get at comparative advantage, and it's very often hard to word it uh, carefully in English. So let me try to say it a, a little better. And again, let me make the distinction. There's a person who's best at sandwich making, sort of, and I'll describe what that is in a minute. And there's the best person for the job. And that may not be the same person. Often will not be. And that was Ricardo's insight. So let's get to that. So who will it be? It, it's tempting to say that the, the sandwich maker – and by the way, we can think of this either as a competitive process. Who is going to be the most profitable sandwich maker? So there might be one to start with who thinks of it, but he's actually not the best person for the job. And somebody else outcompetes him and drives him out of business, or a few of them might open up, as happens in the real world, if the size of the market's large enough. So we could think about a competitive process, but we could also think about a cooperative process where we as a group sat around and said, okay, there's 50 of us. Somebody came up with this idea of sandwich making. Which of the 50 of us should not be a hunter and should stay home every day and make those sandwiches for the next day? Either of those can come up with the right answer under the, the same answer under the right conditions, and I want to focus on that now. But I want you to think about what appears to be the obvious answer as to who should do it and why it's wrong. So the obvious answer would be, well, let's have a competition. Let's have everybody make sandwiches. Whoever – because we're all different in this more realistic world. Whoever can make sandwiches the quickest, that person should be the sandwich maker. Well, that's not true as I'll show in a minute. A second obvious but not true way to decide who should be the sandwich maker is, well, let's just take the worst hunter. Whoever the worst hunter is, let's get that person into the kitchen making sandwiches. But that's not the right answer either, and, and the reason those answers are wrong is David Ricardo's great insight. David Ricardo's insight is you have to look at opportunity cost, and we have a nice uh, summary of this on the website. I'll put a link up to uh, that, that Lauren Landsberg wrote up. Very well done. Opportunity cost, what you give up is the true cost of uh, making the sandwich. It's not, it's not the price because there are no prices yet in this discussion. There's no money even. You're going to swap stuff potentially. The cost of making a sandwich isn't money. It's the time that you give up and in particular what you can do with that time as a hunter. So you might be the best sandwich maker, but you're such a good hunter that it would be a mistake to – even though you're the best sandwich maker in the competition where we had, we – held a stopwatch to people and saw who could make the sandwiches, you might be the best hunter, excuse me, the best sandwich maker, but you're so good at hunting, it would be nuts to assign you 
to the task of sandwich making. And the market in a competitive process would never assign that to you because you give up too much in, in coming out of the field. And similarly, even if you're the worst hunter, it could be you're so horrible at sandwich making, you're better off staying as a hunter. So that was Ricardo's insight that what you give up to do a particular task is really the determinant of uh, what tasks the people are going to choose in a market setting and what you would assign people to as well. Um, now, another way to think about Ricardo's insight, which I really like, is Ricardo's insight is it matters who does what. It matters who does what. You don't assign people randomly to tasks. If we want to maximize our meat production and consumption, if we want to make the pie of economic activity as large as possible, then we don't just assign people randomly because people are different. And it matters not – you don't just assign people to the thing they're, quote, best at, uh, that they're the best at. You don't just assign the sandwich making to the best sandwich maker because that could be too costly. It could mean giving up a lot of venison if that person's a really extraordinary hunter. So the first insight of Ricardo is who does what matters. You don't want to assign people randomly and which people do which thing is not obvious because you want to look at their relative capabilities among the different tasks. Now, one, about, one of the lessons here is – and by the way, I'm talking about economic output here. I'm talking about maximizing the size of the pie. Uh, remember that I've held off to the side non-monetary aspects of life. They do matter, and when we talk about the true size of the true pie, we would want to include those non-monetary aspects as well. So I want to just say that in the background. So one of the lessons of the Ricardian insight and the Ricardian approach is there's two ways to get venison. There's the direct way. You go out and you be a hunter. But there's an indirect way. The indirect way is to make sandwiches and swap them for meat. That's the roundabout way to produce stuff via trade. That's true for individuals and that's true for nations. If we want stuff, we can either make it for ourselves or we can make other stuff that people want. That's important or they won't trade with us and then exchange it. So trade is fundamentally in this Ricardian story or the um, – well, especially in the Ricardian story – it's about implicit cooperation where we leverage each other's skills. An important point in the Ricardian story, an important point in the world where we're different and have different abilities and skills is that the pattern of trade that results is a bit – it can be a lot an illusion. didn't say that very well. The observed pattern of trade can fool us into thinking as the – what the underlying cause of trade is. So – if you and I are in this primitive society and I become the sandwich maker and after a few years, of course, I've, I've added all kinds of fancy new breads and different kinds of uh, spices to the venison because this is all I do all day and I have the incentive and the, and the return from figuring this out for 500 people instead of just for myself. So I've improved the sandwiches a lot over the years and you guys are out there hunting and doing a great job and – you could look at us at, if you were an observer who showed up in the middle of this process. You'd say, well, it's obvious why that guy's the sandwich maker. He's a horrible hunter, and it would be true. After not hunting for five or ten years and running the sandwich shop full time, my hunting skills would probably depreciate or atrophy, and I would look like a horrible hunter. And if you observed me hunting for fun, if you took me out in the field, say, well, maybe you should hunt. Come on out with us. You'd find out I'm a horrible hunter. Because I haven't hunted for a while and I've got this opportunity to specialize in sandwich making. And similarly, 
you in the kitchen as one of the hunters would look a little bit inept trying to slice the meat and do do the uh, bake the bread. But you haven't done it for years. I've been the guy doing that. So it would look like the pattern of trade was, oh, well, there's – of course they trade. There's a guy who's good at sandwiches, who's bad at hunting, a bunch of guys who are good at hunting, not good at sandwiches. Well, of course they trade. But that pattern of skills is endogenous. It emerges from the innovation that I made. So the differences between us, the apparent differences get magnified by the observed uh, – by the opportunity to trade so that an outside observer is going to be fooled into thinking what our skill set is. So I'm horrible at thatching a roof. I can barely get up on a ladder to clean out the, my gutters. I couldn't thatch a roof. I can't butcher a goat. I can't fix an alarm clock. But one of the reasons I can't is because I don't have any incentive to learn those skills, whereas the person in Nepal who has to do those for – for himself, the cook of, of Robert Frank in his opening story, that person can't rely on others to do those things because there aren't enough of them around to make it economically profitable to specialize. You, that's the, the, the Smithian point. So as a result, you end up learning how to do it yourself. So Frank was really, I think, deceived in a sense. Maybe he understood it. I don't mean to suggest he didn't understand this point. But by looking at the exterior skills, the apparent skills of the, his cook, he was fooled into thinking there was some weird thing going on perhaps when in fact it simply was the fact that because he did not have a market to rely on for most of his goods, he had to learn to do them himself. Whereas in America, in a modern, more modern society that has more people to trade with, uh, it doesn't make sense to learn how to do those things. That's too costly. It's expensive to do those things for yourself. Self-sufficiency is the road to poverty. And I should mention that Nepal, by the way, you know, it's a relatively cut-off country from the rest of the world. They have tariffs and perhaps equally important – and this comes back to uh, the podcast with, with Michael Spence. They probably don't have a lot of good infrastructure in Nepal to get goods to market to allow specialization and exchange. The roads are probably not so good. Maybe the ports and harbors aren't so good. Uh, so it's difficult to take advantage of economies of scale and truck stuff around and uh, get the lower prices that result in the higher standard of living. So the bottom line, I'm going to keep going, but uh, other points to make. But I just want to mention that to answer the question, why is that Nepalese person so desperately poor and Americans so desperately rich? The simplest answer is that that I think takes into account both Smith and Ricardo is that that Nepalese cook doesn't have as many people to exchange with as the average American. And as a result, there's less specialization. As a result, goods are more costly. As a result, they are poorer in Nepal than we are in the United States. And the number of people you can exchange with is an enormously important factor for both Smithian and Ricardian reasons. It's Smithian because the more people you can exchange with, the easier it is to leverage the economies of scale that make it useful to apply technology and capital. And it's important for the Ricardian idea because the more people you can exchange with, the more diverse they're likely to be and the more chance there is that you can specialize because of Ricardian reasons. One more thought on the difference between Ricardo and Smith before I continue, which is that the, the Smith story, the, the Ricardo story, that it is our differences that encourage specialization, is a different story in terms of timing than the Smith story that says it's the number of people you can exchange with that determines specialization via economies of scale. The, the Ricardian story is about a point in time. It says at this point in time, given our skills, given our technology, it really makes sense for some of us to specialize in the things we do relatively well, and that will maximize our output. 
as a society or as a group or as a clan. The Smithian idea is about unleashing the power of exchange and trade in a much more dynamic way. It's not just, oh, you know, the pie can be a little bit bigger if we make sure that the right people do the tasks. The Smith idea is if I can apply technology, if our exchange circles are large enough, if I can interact with enough people to make it worthwhile to apply technology, I can get a lot richer and we all can get a lot richer through the growth of innovation and technology. And that's really the Paul Romer point about the power of ideas and knowledge and the incredible publicness of that and the ability for lots of people to generate output and innovation and, and well-being from public ideas. Okay. So let me continue though. I have a few more points uh, to, to talk about. So to summarize where we're at now, I want to ask you a question. We've said that – if there are enough people to exchange with, and we don't know what that number is, obviously, and there could be some false starts where somebody opens a sandwich shop and goes out of business, and it may be that people will think that's a bad idea for a long time, and then someone else will try it again when there are more hunters and they find out it does work. But what we said is that if there are enough people, even if there are no differences in skills, then it trade and specialization, or I should say it back different the reverse, specialization and exchange, specialization and trade makes us all better off even when we're identical. And when we're different, we can do even better than that by making sure that the right people do the tasks that they're relatively good at. And we're going to say – I'm going to make the point later that the way that happens isn't by us sitting around and trying to figure out who does what relatively well. You don't have this competition and see who makes sandwiches well and then a competition in who make who hunts the best and then make sure you figure out through some linear programming optimization problem how to maximize the output of society the wages and prices steer people into the tasks that they're relatively good at which is just the coolest thing and i'll come back to that at the, at the end but i want to ask you a question what is the difference between becoming a better hunter that is adding a knife uh, making the knife sharper improving the handle of the spear making the spear more aerodynamic, adding a, creating a bow and arrow, creating a net, what, some kind of trap. What's the difference between becoming a better hunter and having the opportunity to buy a sandwich on the way to the field? And the answer is there's no difference. It doesn't matter to me as a hunter whether I've got a better tool or I can buy the sandwich on the way to work because both of them allow me as a hunter to become more productive. Both create time, whether I can hunt more effectively, freeing up time to hunt more, or I spending creating freeing up if I can gather enough protein in a shorter period of time that I can do other tasks around the, the house and in my life. That is whether I do that be, by being a better hunter or by having the opportunity to buy a sandwich, which means I don't have to spend the time making the sandwich myself. Both of those create time, which is our most precious resource. That means that there are really only two ways to improve your standard of living. Two ways. You can bang your neighbor over the head and take, your, take the neighbor's stuff. Or you can figure out ways to make your resources more productive. Say it again. There are two ways to improve your life. You can steal your neighbor's stuff. Or you can find a way to make your scarce resources, your time, your energy, your, your skills, yield more stuff than they did before. Now, there's two ways to be more productive. 
The first way is the way we usually think of. Add technology to a process and improve the technology so that the machine works faster, so that the, the spear is sharper, so that the bow and arrow goes farther. That's the standard way we think of technology making us more productive. You go – first you use a, use a, a fishing rod, then you use a, uh, a better fishing rod, then you add a net, then you add a trawler, et cetera. Those are the obvious ways. You add technology to a process and you become more productive. But the second way is specialization with trade and adding technology in that way. Specialization driven by the opportunity to exchange allows us to use all of our skills together and interact with each other. So two ways to get more as a society or as an individual, theft, plunder, theft and plunder, or productivity. Two ways to be more productive, either add technology to the process or specialize and trade more, taking advantage of the economies of scale and add the technology that way. Fundamentally, it's all about technology. But one's a direct way and one is a roundabout way. Um, over the last 300 years or so, this has been the story of the human enterprise. Increased trade, increased opportunities to interact with each other, which leads to increased specialization, increased capital and technology, and an increase in standard of living of an enormous amount. In the United States over the last century, it's an increase of probably 20, 10 to 20 times so our standard of living over the last 100 years has improved by 10 or 20 times, all brought about by economic change, by ever-increasing specialization and the results of that specialization, more capital and the most productive people assigned – the most productive people relative to their opportunity costs assigned to each task, Smith and Ricardo working together. Those two economic forces are differences – and how many of us we are to interact with, create the incentives for exchange, and in turn allow the possibility of technology to be applied to the process, which improves our standard of living year after year after year. But, but not everyone is better off every minute. So a textile worker in North Carolina can have a lower standard of living today than a few years ago because of technological change and because of trade and because of the Smith and Ricardian forces. So let me give you an example from this. About 50 years ago – it's unbelievable uh, numbers – about 50 years ago, a typical North Carolina textile worker operated five machines at once, each capable of running a, th a thread through a loom 100 times a minute. So five machines and each machine threading the loom 100 times a minute. That's 50 years ago. Today's machines are six times as quick. They can do 600 threads a minute. Now, that's the, quote, standard productivity change we think of. In addition, the machine itself is easier to oversee. And instead of overseeing and operating five machines, a typical worker oversees 100. That's a 120-fold increase in output per worker. So instead of each machine I work on is now six times more productive and I can operate 20 times the number of machines I could operate 50 years ago, so I'm 120 times more productive. Not surprisingly, we don't need as many textile workers as we needed a long time ago to produce the clothes we wear. If you're 120 times more productive because of the addition of capital and technology, that's the 
Smith point, the Ricardo point is, well, maybe you shouldn't have the textile mill in North Carolina. It could put it in China and even be more productive, freeing up the labor of the textile worker in North Carolina to do something else. The problem is, is that that person may not find that right away. It might be the next generation that enjoys the fruits of that. Of that, that might be the kids of that textile worker. So not every textile worker is benefiting from the fact that technology in textiles has improved and it's cheaper to produce the textiles in China. The people who wear clothes benefit from it, and they in turn have more resources to use and create other opportunities that the children of the textile worker in North Carolina can now do. But any particular textile worker might be punished and suffer from the fact that the demand for that person's skills aren't as large as they used to be. Uh, the same is true of uh, farmers in 1900. I use the example of farming in 1900. And by the way, it's important to mention, again, this is how our standard of living improves. Every, not every single person's standard of living improves from any one change. But overall, our standard of living improves from the fact of all the changes that occur as people compete, improve their technologies, and as there's more exchange and trade and specialization. So in 1900 – about 40% of the American workforce was on the farm. Uh, today, it's about two and a bit percent, a little under three. That's an enormous change. Uh, you'd think if you were a farmer in 1900 and you were told that only 2% plus percent of the American workforce would be on the farm 100 years from now, you'd assume two things. One, people would starve to death because there wouldn't be enough food produced and there'd be riots in the street because nobody would have jobs because all the people who used to work in agriculture wouldn't be able to do it anymore. But of course, what actually happened is a whole bunch of new jobs came along, new specialized opportunities to, to use your skills and the standard of living of Americans over that 100-year period became much higher partly because food was much cheaper, partly because it didn't take as much as many resources or as many people to produce the food that we wanted uh, to consume. So the point of that is that I don't want to whitewash economic change. It does have challenges. Uh, but as Don Boudreau has pointed out, I think in a podcast we did, uh, it's easy to say, well, I want all the benefits of specialization, but not, you know, in my industry, I don't want to compete. Everything that we observe around us, look out the window and think about your daily life. All of that is a result of an enormous nexus, an enormous web of specialization and trade that the people in Nepal do not have uh, – are not able to take advantage of. We have that incredible blessing that we have an enormously large country with pretty much open borders to goods. And as a result, our ability to exchange with people is enormously large and we specialize a lot and it's really cheap. And as a result, we have leisure and time to enjoy life that previous generations uh, could not do. Even in our economic downturn, uh, most Americans still have that. And of course, at any point in time, though, there are people who are struggling. And, I, and it's also true that even when the economy is humming along, there are going to be economic changes as certain sectors rise and fall that make it uh, in the short run difficult for people to uh, do as well as they've been doing before. But even when they're struggling, they're still, do still doing immensely better than people did 300 years ago because they're benefiting from lots and lots of specialization uh, across industries, even though their own might be struggling at a particular point in time. Let me ask uh, one, a couple more questions, and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up. This story I've told about specialization and trade, increasing our standard of living, our output, because of our opportunity to take advantage of economies of scale and apply capital and technology 
That's the Smith story. And then we add in the Ricardo story, which is the opportunity to, to that some people do other some tasks relatively well and we're going to assign we're not going to assign, as I'll make clear in a minute, but people are going to be doing different tasks based on their relative skills. What does that story have to do with borders? Is there anything in that story that has to do with the borders between nations? So if the hunter-gatherer group we were talking about was in Maine or Minnesota and the guy who had the idea for the takeout sandwiches was a Canadian a few feet across an invisible line called the border between U.S. and Canada, would it change the conclusions at all about the virtues and the productivity of trade? Not at all. Borders have nothing to do with it. Both sides are better off. What's the difference between Toyota driving down the price of cars and Ford figuring out a way to make cars with fewer people? There's no difference to the rest of us. What's the difference between finding ways to make your land more productive through fertilizer or harvesting or planting techniques when you grow food? What's the difference between that and buying cheaper food from foreigners? They're the same. They both free up resources and raise our standard of living. But again, neither is technique, trade, or productivity is guaranteed to help every single person every single second to be better and better off. There are obviously ups and downs that we all uh, experience. Let me close with a question. In the real world of, that we live in, that's David Ricardo's world, the world where people are different, how do we decide who does what? How do we decide when there are millions or billions of people who can choose from millions of different kinds of jobs? It's not just the two-by-two two matrix, the two-by-two two table of hunting and fishing and you and me and Robinson Crusoe and Friday. Who's the appointment czar who assigns people to the tasks that make us as a group as productive as possible? And the answer, of course, is there isn't one. What steers people into the different tasks are the wages of different jobs that are constantly adjusting, sending messages and signals to people as to what is the most productive use of their time. Now, suppose you believe that you have a God-given obligation to use your skills and talents to serve mankind. You want to do the thing that's most productive. How would you know what to do? What is Roger Federer better at, tennis or fly fishing? It's a meaningless question. It's really surprising. You'd say, well, let's have him play tennis for a while. It turns out he's the best tennis player in the world. And then let's see him fly fish. Maybe he's the best fly fisher in the world. Maybe he's not the best fly fisherman, but he's the, the return to fly fishing is so high that he should be a fly fisherman. You say, that's silly. Golf's more productive. Tennis is more productive than fly fishing. But that's not obvious. It only turns out to be the case because that's what people like. It's the value of tennis that matters, not his absolute aptitude. It's not how good he is at fly fishing, which doesn't mean anything. So, for example, he could be – we'll take Andy Roddick. Andy Roddick's a very good tennis player. He's one of the top – 50 tennis players in the world. He's not as good as Roger Federer, but he's a great tennis player, and he devotes his professional activities in this at his current age to tennis playing. But it could be he's the best knot tire in the world. He's even better. Even though he's in the top 50 in tennis, he's really good at tying knots, and he's the best in the world at that. So that's what he should do. So it's pretty obvious that that's pretty silly, that your absolute physical aptitude at something tells you nothing about what you should do. 
It's the value that your activity produces relative to its value in other applications, other things that people might enjoy you doing. So we think of the million tasks. Imagine taking each of us and doing the million tasks and creating this enormous matrix of physical capabilities. Who's the best at this? Who's 73rd best at that? Well, that would be, as Hayek pointed out, an impossible knowledge problem to solve. You could never use that information. You could never gather that information. You certainly could never practically use it to allocate people. So how can we possibly allocate people to the millions of potential tasks, making sure that we don't waste people's skills? And the answer, of course, is that the wages and the prices steer people into the activities that they're relatively best at. So Roger Federer never thinks of giving up tennis for knot tying because knot tying doesn't pay, even though he might be a phenomenally good knot tire. And he might even be um, – and, he, and it, again, he might be uh, inferior in some weird physical sense at tennis compared to not tying, but they're not really comparable until you put the value in. And once you put the value in, he gets steered into tennis. Now, it could be that Roger Federer would be an even better golfer. could be he could beat Tiger Woods on the golf course, make more money at golf, but he sticks with tennis because he loves tennis. And that's okay too. That's the non-monetary aspect I talked about before. You don't just take the job that pays the most money. You take the job that's most rewarding that includes both the non-monetary and the monetary aspects of the job. You take the job that pays the most where the pay isn't just the monetary pay but the return of satisfaction and the pleasure you get from the job as well. So very few of us take the job that pays the most and that would be a mistake uh, to, to as a general principle. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. I look forward to your comments. It's kind of a dense set of uh, topics, but um, it's something I think about a lot and I look forward to thinking about a little bit more down the road. And I hope uh, it helps you think about these issues as well. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.